welcome to another episode of our NP Clinical Series podcast, where we discuss all things NP clinical practice and offer some pearls of wisdom along the way. Let's jump right into the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another Clinical Series NP podcast. I am your host, Jonna Emil, and joining me this evening is Dr. Nicole Oliver. Hello, Dr. Oliver. Hello. Thank you for joining me again. My, I was just saying that she's a podqua- podcast master at this point. She's done enough with me that she knows how this goes. But for anyone who hasn't seen you or heard from you in our podcast series, can you just introduce yourself and let us know just who you are and where you practice and what do you do? So I am Dr. Nicole Oliver and I live in Arkansas, if you can't tell from my accent. <laughs> I um, I work in family practice primarily, but I'm dual certified in family and adult acute care. Excellent. So this conversation I'm excited about because it's something that I know pretty little about, I would say, even in my career and in education. But before we hopped onto this podcast, I was trying to do a little bit of like background learning on my own. And I read that I think it was two out of three U.S. adults are considered overweight or obese. And even in that same like line of me falling down the rabbit hole of the internet search, I then saw that Weight Watchers actually is buying into a company that sells like weight loss medications like Ozempic, which is a podcast that I've actually done before with Dr. Sally Miller. So it really took me down this rabbit hole of like obesity in the U.S. and the treatments that we do and the interventions and, and like, what does yeah, that look like? That. So before we get into some of the, the options on like how we deal with that, I was wondering if you can kind of frame up just the conversation around bariatric surgery and how do we get there from, you know, what we know today, what's true today, you know, in our country and what's true today about obesity and treatments and things like that. So obesity is rampant, especially in the United States. Uh, Rates are increasing all around the world, and it's really bad, of course, in the United States. So in 2016, um, the World Health Organization estimated that about 39% of adults were overweight and 13% were obese. And CDC is kind of along the same lines, but they estimated about 42% of the population. And then they further break it down into children, which is really scary, especially with the health risks and everything. But there's over 340 million children ages 5 to 19 in the United States that are identified as overweight or obese. Wow. Yeah, that is quite scary. And so even in that same vein, we're seeing that the rates of bariatric surgery are climbing. You know, they have been climbing for a couple of years now. So what are, you know, what is that? What are some of the the benefits and the risks of that? And obviously, or maybe not obviously, when we're talking about our patients and talking about those that are obese, you know, is it something that's for everybody? So it's not necessarily for everyone. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a little while. And actually, before we start, I just want to disclose that I am a bariatric patient. I have lost half of my body weight. I mean, I used to weigh like 260. I'm 5'4". And so you can imagine what my BMI was. And now I'm 130. So I had that in 2017. Wow. And again, it, it's not for everybody. 
Um, but obesity, I just want to point out to begin with that it places individuals at risk for just significant risk for multiple different medical conditions, um, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, obstructive sleep apnea. I mean, there are all kinds of things that it increases the risk of. And so um, it actually decreases the life expectancy of people by about seven years. And so if you smoke on top of that and other high risk things, then your life expectancy is just not good. So I see patients a lot in the clinic who are overweight, and that is a difficult conversation to have with people. And I can relate 100%. And I, I don't just go to patients and say, it's because you're overweight. It's because you need to lose weight. I'm not That's just not how I practice because I remember whenever I was super morbidly obese, it did not matter what my practitioner or my provider said to me. All I remembered if they said anything about my weight is, well, they told me that it's just because I was fat. And so I tried Mm. to be very mindful of that. And I mean, some stuff is because people are overweight, like whenever they're having hip and knee pain, you know, for every pound that they're overweight, it puts, you know, three pounds and six pounds and on their knees and their hips. And so that's just a very significant thing. And so it is a conversation worth having with people, but I don't jump to that first. Um, But there are a lot of benefits for having bariatric surgery. Of course, you want to try non-surgical options first. There's supervised weight loss that you can do. And um, that's kind of the chic thing right now. And you were talking about uh, Weight Watchers and Ozempic, and I do have that on my list of... um, of like medically supervised weight loss. There's all these weight loss clinics popping up. Manjaro is another really popular one right now. And so I have a lot of patients asking me for that kind of stuff, but non-surgical things. um, Usually people will come one-on-one with their um, provider and then they will ask for Fenteramine or Ozempic or Manjaro or something like that. And I always have people, and I do not get paid to say this, but I always have people, number one, I'm like, <laughs> give me your phone. And um, and so they'll hand me their phone and I download my fitness pal and it's a free app. And they track all of their calories and all of their activities. And so I myself have a Garmin. And so I hooked my Garmin up to it. And so it tracks everything that you do. And then if you track everything that you eat, we take in more calories than we think that we do. And so whenever I actually started tracking, I was like, ooh, I'm not going to eat that Snickers in a little bit because then I got to put it in my app and then it's going to make me walk 10,000 more steps and I don't want to do that. (laughs) So I always have people... People do that to begin with. And then we do medically supervised weight loss where I'm like, okay, bring me your logs and we're going to go over your logs and we're going to just talk about what we can do um, non-surgically. And then there's other non-surgical things like they have an intragastric balloon that they can put in. Um, and it's just a temporary balloon that's placed in the stomach for a maximum of about six months that helps people. Um, it just helps curb their appetite. And so the idea behind that is to kind of train them to not eat as much. And then hopefully after they take that balloon out, you know, that will just carry on. So, 
sometimes that stuff doesn't work for people. I tried every diet there was. I tried reducing calories. And as an overweight person myself, it's very <laughs> frustrating. And I tell people this now. I'm like, I promise you, I have been in this chair exactly where you're at. And I can relate to where you are. But it is so much easier said than done, for one thing. And it's very difficult and very time consuming to lose weight. And I always tell people, I say, you did not put the weight on overnight and you're not going to lose it overnight. And it's something that's going to stay with you. And you're going to have to develop these habits and you're going to have to keep these habits in order to keep the weight off or it's just going to come right back on. And so sometimes that just doesn't work for people. And so they opt to do bariatric surgery. And so that is a conversation. And that's something that that people are more open to now. And it's been around for quite some time. They had several different surgeries like back in the 60s and stuff like that. But the ones that they have now seem to be a lot safer. Um, just a few of the different ones that I'll just kind of go over and mention. Um, they have a couple of different types of procedures. One of them is a, or not one of them, but one of the types is restrictive procedures where basically it restricts the amount of calories that you can take in. And so it makes you feel full faster. And a couple of those restrictive procedures, the lap band is something that uh, people do. And it's basically just a gastric band that, um, that goes around your stomach and it makes your stomach smaller so that you can't eat that much. And so then they can um, make it smaller and smaller if they need to, they can loosen it out some if they need to. And so that's um, an adjustment that they can make with saline through a port that's just right below the skin. So that's one of the restrictive procedures. Another one would be the gastric sleeve, which is what I personally had. And so it's a sleeve gastrectomy. And so it reduces the size of the stomach and um, by about 75%. So you're down to about 25% of your stomach. And so you just literally cannot take in very many calories. And people, right. my students and stuff joke with me all the time. They're like, oh my gosh, you eat like a bird. You eat just a little bit. And then like a couple hours later, you eat just a little bit more. And I'm like, well, I just, I can't eat like I used to. And so yeah. that seems to help. And that's kind of how you're supposed to eat anyway. You're supposed to eat five or six very small meals a day and not three large meals a day, which is what a lot of people are doing now. Yeah. So those are a couple of the different types of restrictive procedures, and they do have um, some criteria that you have to meet in order to even have any type of uh, bariatric surgery by a reputable surgeon is you have to be at a minimum 35 BMI. And a lot of times with that 35 BMI, you have to have um, other medical conditions like heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, things like oh. that. And then a 40 BMI is the minimum required, which is what I had to have because I don't have any medical problems yet, which I was on my way, I'm sure, to tons of medical problems. But you have to have a minimum of 40 BMI if you don't have any of those other risk factors. And so um, that's like one of the main criteria. And then they also want you to have tried something else. They usually will not just let you go straight to bariatric surgery. Some of the other things that they will have you do is a lot of the places, especially if they're bariatric centers of excellence, they'll have you go to a seminar where you learn about the different surgeries and you learn about, um, about just the whole process. And I always want to point out to people that bariatric surgery is a tool. It is not 
just something, a fix. It's not just a fix for being overweight. It's a tool that you will use in order to make changes for the rest of your life so that you can keep the weight off. So uh, a lot of people will make you go to a seminar and then you have to meet those specific criteria. If you see any specialists, like if you see a cardiologist or a lung doctor or a rheumatologist or something like that, then usually they're going to require some type of clearance from them. Um, so some of the other surgeries that I probably should have mentioned before I did that, but some of the other surgeries are malabsorptive surgeries. And so basically what they do is they make it where you don't absorb all of those calories basically. And then, um, and then you're not gaining the weight. And so some of those procedures, um, which are actually malabsorptive and restrictive, um, gastric bypass, which uh, people will see it as Roux-en-Y bypass. And so uh, basically they reduce the size of the stomach and then they um, kind of bypass a portion of the small intestine. And that just reduces the amount of food that you can take in and the amount of food that you can absorb. So that's another one that we use. Uh, The duodenal switch is one, and there's actually a traditional duodenal switch and then a modified duodenal switch. Um, And both of those are malabsorptive and restrictive. And so uh, people will meet criteria for those. But basically, uh, the biggest difference between those is that the modified one bypasses about 50 to 60% of the small intestine. And then the traditional actually bypasses about 90% of the small intestine. And then they reduce the size of the stomach as well. So those are some, uh, some different surgeries that they have. And as with any surgery, there's going to be, um, complications and risk, I mean, not necessarily complications, we hope there's not, but there's always risks associated with any type of surgery that you do. But with these um, bariatric surgeries, you've got to look for uh, things like bleeding, leakage from the staple or suture lines, um, which can lead to leakage like in the stomach and the intestines and stuff like that. Uh, complications with anesthesia that you could have with any type of surgery, blood clots, infections. Um, One of the big things that I notice is marginal ulcers will happen because, and this is something that it's, it's just funny because I can completely relate to this because with most of the surgeries, the modified duodenal switch is one that's um, kind of an exception to this, but they will not let you take NSAIDs anymore because of the risk of marginal ulcers. And so I love my ibuprofen. I had car ibuprofen, purse (laughs) ibuprofen, office ibuprofen. I had it everywhere. And now I can't take ibuprofen. And so it's kind of like, oh my gosh, if I have a headache or something, of course I've got to take Tylenol or something like that, but I can't take NSAIDs. And so I remember having like some back problems a few years ago and I ended up going to the chiropractor and I was like, man, I wish I could take some ibuprofen now because this is really, (laughs) hurting. But that can cause marginal ulcers. And so they tell you, of course, not to do that. And they can always get infections, uh, lung problems, injuries to other organs, which is a risk with any type of surgery, uh, band slippings, erosion, things like that. And that's with like the lap band and stuff like that. Um, But they do most of these surgeries laparoscopically now. So there's less risk with that. Um, some of the side effects from these surgeries, of course, is weight loss, which is what we want. 
Um, whenever people first have these surgeries, it's kind of, it's really a shell shock because you have to follow, especially pre-op and then post-op, but you have to follow a specific diet and, um, pre-op, they will, uh, pretty much let you do anything. And they usually want you to try to lose some weight before surgery so that you can shrink your liver, which is going to decrease the amount of complications like of them nicking your liver or something like that. And so they usually try to get you to lose some weight before the surgery. And so they'll put you on a liquid diet and every surgeon is different with that. I had to do a 10 day liquid diet and I started my liquid diet on Halloween. So I could not have any Halloween candy. Oh no. (laughs) Dr. Oliver, why would you set yourself up? I know. I know. Whenever I was like counting the days and figuring out when I had to start, I was like, Halloween. And then I was like, no, I really want this surgery and I'm going to do everything that they tell me to do. So, um, (laughs) so that was, that was not fun, but you know, I did it. Uh, but you have to follow the diet. You've got to follow the pre-op diet so that you can reduce your risk of complications. Um, Sometimes people can get bowel obstructions. That's another uh, complication that people can have. And so they just, you really just have to be mindful of things like that. Um, So I'm looking at my notes here. So before the surgery, they, of course, are going to put you on a liquid diet. Um, They have to clear you. You've got to meet the criteria that we talked about earlier. Uh, You have to be cleared by your specialists. Depending on who it is, depending on the surgeon and if they're a bariatric center of excellence, they will have you see a nutritionist a couple of times before you go so that you can learn how you're supposed to eat after your surgery so that you can make Mm -hmm. this lifestyle change and not just, you know, like I said, it is a, a tool for you to use. And so they prepare you for the lifestyle change. A lot of them will have people see a psychiatrist. And the reason for that is they want to make sure that you are mentally stable enough to handle the surgery because a lot of people for so long have used food as a coping mechanism or they have an addiction and that's how they feed it is with food. And so after the surgery, they want to make sure that you're realizing that that's not going to be your coping mechanism anymore and that you're going to have to find something else. And unfortunately, sometimes people find other things to get addicted to like gambling or just drugs or alcohol or something else. And so they want to make sure that everything's going to, you know, they of course can't predict everything, but they just want to make sure that you're in a good mental state to begin with so that you decrease the risk of that happening. Some of them, uh, the guy I went to, he had me see a personal trainer beforehand because they want you to exercise. If you have not been exercising, they want you to exercise after this so that you can continue this, again, lifestyle change afterwards and keep up with it. So I personally saw a nutritionist and I saw a psychiatrist and I saw a personal trainer. And after I had my surgery, I started running. And so that's what I do now is I'm, I'm a runner. I run about four or five days a week. It just really depends, but I do have marathons and stuff like that because I got to keep up with that, um, with the exercise. And then, uh, (laughs) 
So sometimes they have you do some other tests as well. I had to do like an H. pylori breath test, I remember, so that they make sure you don't have H. pylori because that's going to increase your risk of complications. Uh, They make you do an EGD sometimes. Um, My H. pylori breath test was negative and I didn't have a history of GERD or anything like that. So I didn't have to do an EGD, but there's a lot of them that do have to do that uh, because they want to make sure that you don't have a marginal ulcer to begin with and then they're operating on top of that increasing your risk of infection and things like that. Uh, Some people have to do a sleep study and I did not have to do that. I didn't have sleep apnea or anything like that. I'm sure I would have gotten it if I would have just stayed along that route that I was on. But some people have to do a sleep study and then most of them have you do labs. Um, I have a friend that had gastric sleeve surgery and they did a bunch of vitamin labs before hers and her surgery got put off two different times because uh, I forget which vitamin it was, but one of her vitamins was really low and they wanted to get that supplemented before she went into surgery so that she could decrease the risk of complications afterwards. So they have you do all of this stuff pre-op. And then again, they have you do like a liquid diet for so long before you have the surgery. And then you go in and you have the surgery. And a lot of um, insurances, my insurance required that I did six months of medically supervised weight loss before I had the surgery. And so I did all of those things that we talked about, nutritionists, psychiatrists, I saw a personal trainer, I did all the labs and everything. And then um, I had to go in and see the surgeon and I had to go to two seminars and I had to go to two support groups because they do have um, bariatric support groups in a lot of places. So you've, you've got to do all of this stuff. And I even go to, they have online support groups. And so I'll even sit in on some of those afterwards because people will talk about, well, you know, I started smoking after my surgery because I didn't have food as a coping mechanism. And so people will go in and, you know, help them with that kind of stuff. But they will also yeah. prepare you for after surgery where you've got to do a specific post-op diet, like you can have clear liquids for the first um, week and then you go to full liquids. And so it's it's a very specific, like you can only have this kind of stuff for so long because they don't want you to um, tear your stitches or anything like that. So it's super important to do the post-op diet, of course, and the wound care and do any follow-up appointments. Because sometimes people will think that the surgery is just their quick fix for everything. And then they don't do the follow-ups. And that's really dangerous to not do that. And it also increases the risk of people gaining their weight back. Because sometimes if people don't realize this is a lifestyle change and a lifelong thing, then they will just go back into the habits. And I know I was talking about the restriction of the um, gastric sleeve and stuff earlier, but you can stretch your stomach back out. And so if you are just taking in more and more slowly and slowly, then you can stretch it back out and then you gain a bunch of weight back. And I've seen that happen with a lot of people too, because they don't follow the lifestyle modifications that they're supposed to. You know, you mentioned Dr. Oliver and you know, you have me thinking about it and it seems so obvious, right? Like nutrition is such a big part of the conversation in general before and after, But in thinking about some of the risks and some of the things that you're, you know, explaining that could occur, I'm so curious about some of these different surgical procedures, specifically the ones that bypass is not the word, but kind of bypasses the word where you create this um, malabsorption kind Mm -hmm. of scenario. I'm thinking about things 
of like, of course, nutrients, like how does that affect nutrients? But when we talked about risks a bit, I'm, I'm now back in like A and P where I learned it has to go through the small intestines and then the large intestines or else we're going to end up with a very different stool than we, you know, we had before. So I'm thinking about things like bowel habits. Is that something also that changes for patients? And is that something that is, can be just kind of difficult to manage during this time? Yes, for sure. And um, like I said, people can, with the malabsorption, people can get vitamin deficiencies. That's another complication that people can have afterwards. And I have seen several, I don't want to say several, because I don't want to make it sound like it's like super common or anything. But when yeah. you see people in the hospital, that's all you see is sick people. You don't see the well people. Right. <laughs> and right. so uh, I've seen several people in the hospital after surgery who uh, they were just too nauseous to eat or to whatever. And then and they just, with the malabsorptive procedures, they weren't absorbing certain nutrients like potassium and stuff like that. And so they were having to get that IV and then they were losing way too much weight too fast, which is a complication in itself because you can get gallstones from doing that. That's another complication afterwards that sometimes people get whenever you lose a bunch of weight rapidly, then you develop gallstones sometimes. So luckily that didn't happen to me. I was waiting. Anytime I had like a small pain, I'd be like, oh, it's happening. <laughs> There it is. <laughs> yeah. But they uh, they kind of prepare you for that kind of stuff. But I, like I said, I would see people and they would have to get potassium or magnesium or vitamin D or something like that. They would have to get that afterwards. But they do put you on vitamins. You're supposed to take certain vitamins. And depending on which surgery it is, they uh, prescribe different vitamins. And so I'm supposed to take vitamin D. And I already had kind of a low vitamin D to begin with. But there's bariatric multivitamins that have some of the specific vitamins that you are that you could be lacking in after the surgery. So they do have bariatric chewables that you can take. But people oh, do okay. have changes in bowel habits sometimes, and they can get very constipated, and that can lead to a bowel obstruction. But sometimes they have the opposite problem, and it sometimes it depends on what they eat. Wow. Wow. That's quite interesting. What about, you know, some of the, you named the complications and the risks and things that we have to look out for. But when we think about bariatric surgery long-term, you know, what does that look like? What's the success there? And I, I suppose that we're measuring success in the way of, well, the patient has lost X amount of pounds, has gotten to this, you know, weight range that we're saying is healthy, doesn't have any type of like comorbidities in that way. But long-term, is bariatric surgery pretty successful at being like permanent, if that makes sense? Yeah, they are pretty successful, but it all is going to depend on the patient. Not all, but the majority of it's going to depend on the patient. Are they following the post-op instructions? Are they using this as a tool or are they you know, going back yeah. to old habits, which is very easy to do. Are they exercising or not? Because people think, oh, I'm just going to get a sleeve and then I don't ever have to exercise. And that is not the case. I, I run all the time. And so I work very hard to keep my weight off. I'm at the lowest weight. I mean, I had mine in 2017 and I plateaued for like two or three years. I kept like 75 pounds off, but then I was like, man, I don't, this is not, I want to be lower than this. And so I started kind of changing my eating habits up a little bit. And then I started running too. And that just really helped me get the rest of it off. 
Wow, that's really great. You know, can I ask you, and thank you, Dr. Oliver, for sharing your story. That's fantastic. Can I ask, you know, you personally as a patient and then as a provider, what did you find most challenging about, you know, post-bariatric surgery, life after that? And, And what are some of the things that you find with your patients that they might express to be, you know, the biggest challenges that they're experiencing? So right after surgery, it is very difficult to get into the mindset that this is going to be lifelong. So one of the things they teach you in this is not to drink while you eat. And that is very hard for people. And that was hard for me because like when you go to a restaurant, they bring you a drink with your, I mean, they're always like, that's the first thing they ask you, what do you want to drink? And so that I would say for a while, I would just be like, no, I don't want anything to drink, but waiters and waitresses are so trained to keep an eye on everybody's drinks. And so they would just constantly be by the table. And so I learned a little trick is to let them bring you some water and then just keep the water in front of you, even though you're not drinking any of it or whatever, if you just keep it in front of you and it's full, they will not ask you about it again. And so that's kind of a little trick that I learned. And another thing that I struggled with, and I know patients struggle with is When food is really good and you want to keep eating it, but you have to stop, you have to make yourself stop and you got to kind of listen to your body. And I learned, and this is going to sound just totally bizarre, but it's true, is whenever I get full, when my stomach gets full, not my brain, but when my stomach gets full, my nose starts running. And so if I'm eating and my nose starts running, I automatically put my fork down and stop eating. That is really funny. (laughs) Yeah. And so I know, though, if I take one more bite that I'm going to be sick. And so that's some of the things afterwards. And so that's um, that's stuff that I try to teach people. And I think it's good to have been a patient myself because I can relate. I'm like, I know I wanted to keep eating that cake, but I just couldn't do it. I can only take two bites. And so I've also learned when we go out to like share meals with my child or with my husband or something like that. And so that usually works out pretty well, because even though in my brain, I want to eat that whole meal. I know that I'm not going to be able to, and I'm just going to waste food. And so I try to kind of share and stuff like that. That usually works really well. And you learn what you can and cannot eat. Because I remember uh, after I had surgery, uh, whenever I finally got to the phase where I could eat solid food, I was like, okay, I'm going to eat like a tuna packet because that's high in protein because they want you to get in all your protein. And so I'm going to eat a tuna packet. And I took two bites and got totally sick. And I don't think I've even looked at tuna since then. <laughs> but everybody has their different things that they can and can't and just can't tolerate after surgery. And you just have to kind of learn that the hard way. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Those are really, those are interesting little tidbits. Are there any other type of long-term effects that, you know, we, we haven't talked about that we don't really consider thinking about after bariatric surgery? Really just um, vitamin deficiencies is one of the big things. And then knowing about um, gallstones and stuff like that and making sure that you take the medicine that you're supposed to and just following what you're supposed to do because it's very easy to get back into old habits. And so long-term, usually um, the long-term stuff that I see, I saw one lady who uh, just didn't follow the diet and she kind of just went back into her old 
habits. And then she had been off of all of her medicines for everything, because that's what happens a lot of times after you have surgery is you just get off all your medicines, not all of them, but most of them like for diabetes, high blood pressure, because with losing weight, you don't have that stuff anymore a lot of times. And so she got off most of her medicines and then she started gaining weight again because she went back into old habits. And then she came in and diabetic ketoacidosis because she didn't realize that she turned back to being diabetic. And so those are just things that you have to kind of watch out for and keep a good eye on. And that's what, why the importance of follow-ups, I mean, especially after you have that surgery, you need to follow up religiously so that you make sure you don't have those complications. Or if you do, you're going to catch them early. Absolutely. And, you know, I really, I really love that you framed it up in the way of like, this is a tool, right? Like we're using this as a resource for overall health, like anything else that we might do, not the end all be all, which certainly I can understand some patients kind of taking that as, as the big fix. And that's an important distinction, Um, especially when you talk about some of the, those comorbidities that, it's amazing just to hear that people can get off of their antihyperglycemics or they can get off their antihypertensives. That's great. So really understanding that and being able to support patients to understand that, I think is really, really important. You know, Dr. Oliver, what other things, before we wrap, do you want to share with our NP audience that you think is really important for them to understand about bariatric patient care and even, you know, complications, things to look out for. What are the the tidbits that you think are important that we haven't covered? Some of the things that I think are important is overweight people know that they're overweight. And so, I mean, just like I said, not harping on that. And I know that it's very important to say to people, but it's very it's very disheartening as a patient whenever you're overweight, because like I said, that's all you hear is people saying, well, she said I was fat. And even though they didn't say it like that, you have to be mindful of how you talk to them um, and how you put things and things like that. And then getting them, trying to get them as healthy as you can earlier, especially because like I said earlier, we have more and more kids that are overweight. And so, we need to talk to these people earlier. And I had a discussion today with an 11 year old who weighs almost 200 pounds. Um, and I had a very long discussion with the patient and I had a long discussion with the mom about the health risks and things like that. And the patient was not happy with me by the end of it, because I was like, you can't eat hamburgers every day. You can't eat, you know, all of the stuff that you're eating and you're going to have to get out and start walking and do things like that. But getting to these people yeah. earlier is just very important, especially whenever they're, you younger and they're overweight. Yeah, I agree. Proactive prevention. That's the key. Absolutely. Dr. Nicole Oliver, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate all the information. Quite honestly, this is something that I knew pretty little about. So this was really great for me personally, and I'm sure that our audience enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you everyone for listening and tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you'd like any more information about what we've covered, check out our course offerings on FHEA.com and see what else we got cooking there. And for Nicole Oliver, again, thank you for joining as always. See you again soon. Goodbye for now. For more information about the topics discussed during today's episode, please check out FHEA.com.